Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. Amen. All right, everybody. It's been a great service. Y'all are dismissed. God bless you. (laughs) Hallelujah. Boy, I tell you, worship today was so magnificent that in some ways it's hard to go beyond that and move beyond that, but I'm going to attempt to do that. Amen. By the way, uh, shameless, shameless plug for Studio K Workshop's presentation of the Nutcracker which is happening this afternoon at 3 p.m. at the Schaefer Center. That's, that's where my family and I have been uh, all week, and we've been performing. And, and uh, So if you see myself, my wife, one of our girls, and we look a little tired, then you'll know why, because we've been dancing our little hearts out. <laughs> if you would like to come and see my wife and children and myself on a big stage, you can come. And Shiloh. Is Shiloh, is Shiloh in Oh, she's working babies. She's in there tonight. Um, anybody else that was, that was, I know Eliza was in last night, right? Who else was in? Um, Adelaide was in last night. Anybody else from here that was in there? Well, y'all did a great job. So praise the Lord. Um, I'm going to finish the message that I started last week. That's titled The Story of Redemption. And it's a Christmas message. It's a Christmas uh, mini-series, you could call it. And we, we, we began to talk last week about really the whole story of redemption from the Garden of Eden all the way to the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem. If you remember, we chose to take a unique look at the Christmas story. Number one, because we're looking at it as a whole, beginning in the Garden of Eden, And two, because we're looking at it through a unique perspective. How many of you remember? Who can tell me the perspective that we're looking at the Christmas story through? Angels, that's right, through the eyes of the angels. What an amazing thing it must have been to be not only in the fields that night, would have been amazing to be a shepherd, but how amazing it must have been to be one of the angels who got to watch the entire story of redemption, beginning in the Garden of Eden, beginning in the fall of man, and all the way up to the moment that Christ Jesus was born. What an incredible thought. So it's a unique perspective, and we're going to continue in that discussion today. I began by reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, and I want to read that again, and then we'll pray. 1 Peter 1, 8 says, You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. 
They wondered at what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when they told in advance about Christ's suffering and His great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity we are given once again to come before your word and to be, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be taught, to have your truth illuminated to our hearts and minds today by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you that as we peer into your word that you would give us wisdom and insight, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you. We thank you this morning, God, that our hearts and minds perceive and understand your word and your will. And we declare that we're growing in the things of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're attempting, again, to see the entire Christmas narrative, the narrative of redemption, the story of redemption, through the eyes of the only beings who had a front row seat for the entire production. And that's the angels. I made a joke with you last week about how we don't know when the angels were created exactly in the, in the timeline of human history and in, even in the timeline of creation. We can't really put a date on when the angels were created. They were created sometime before the creation of the world and, and, and uh, you know, humanity. Um, and I told you that I did a Google search for that to, to see when were the angels created just to see what Google had to say about the subject. And uh, Google said 1961 was when they were created. Of course, they were referencing the Los Angeles Angels baseball team, which was started in 1961. So one group of angels is fairly new. (laughs) The other group of angels is pretty old. But I think this is an amazing passage of Scripture in 1 Peter because it really highlights for us and really stirs me when I think about it how profound it must be for the heavenly hosts to look at the narrative of humanity and the the, the timeline of humanity. It's impossible for them. In fact, Keith was texting me about that this week. It's impossible for them to know and truly understand the love of Christ because it's impossible for them to receive it. Only human beings, only you and I, are capable of housing the Spirit of God. Only, only, uh, only those made in the image of God are capable of, of having our natures transformed, of having a personal and intimate familial relationship with God. It's only us as human beings that are called the sons of God, right? Angels don't get to have that title. So the very best that they can do is to fly around the throne of God and exist in heaven and exist in the spirit realm, which we can't see. And and, and the very best that they can do is watch the drama of humanity like you and I watch a series on television. 
They, they get to have an impact in it, but they can never fully know what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. They'll never know what redemption truly feels like. Yet, in all of that, they get to have this very unique perspective on watching the drama of human history unfold and how interesting it must have been for them to watch it. Peter says it's so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching God's story unfold. To give a minute or two of review, we followed human history through the book, or excuse me, through the Bible, and took something of a 30,000 foot view of the entire Old Testament. Our story began before creation, before the creation of the world, when God decided that he himself was going to be our redeemer. If you go back and you read Genesis chapter 3 carefully, you'll see very clearly that it was God himself who decided to be the redeemer of humankind right at the very beginning, right at the origin of man's sin. Long before man was created, it was decided that there would be a Messiah and a redeemer. And it was decided that he would be a lamb to be slain. You remember I said this last week. God's plan was always for a lamb. God's plan was always for a lamb. From the Garden of Eden forward, God kept inserting himself into the story of humanity in different ways. We said that he would, he would keep pulling the curtain back a little bit over the years, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. He would give insight into his plan. He would, he would speak through different people. He would interact with different people. He kept, he kept putting himself in the story through the years. And if you go back down through Israel's history, you can see it almost like the peeling away of an onion. Have you ever just peeled back an onion? It's just so many different layers. That's what I feel like when I'm reading the Old Testament. Except it's like a billion layers, not just a few onion layers. It's like you just go chapter after chapter and you see God just pulling, just pulling the curtain back just a little bit more, just pulling away another layer and revealing himself, revealing his plan, revealing his goodness, revealing his mercy. And everything is leading up to this moment where God himself inserts himself into the story and comes as our Redeemer. I asked this question every time we looked at another layer last week. I asked this question that the angels must have been asking. Is this the lamb? We talked about going from, from, from creation in the garden to Noah and the flood. Noah is the first like deliverer that the world sees about 1,100 years after, after the whole Garden of Eden's experience. Noah's the first deliverer that humanity sees, and he delivers and saves his wife and his, his family and starts society over again, basically. And I wonder if the angels tapped themselves on, you know, elbowed each other and said, do you think this is it? you think this is God's lamb? Is this the redeemer? And then you fast forward another 900 years and you find Abraham sacrificing, getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I think the angels have to wonder, is this the redeemer? Is this the lamb? 500 years later, Moses is in the nation of Egypt and, and, and Israel has become a full-blown nation, three million plus people. 
The angels are starting to wonder, is this the lamb? Moses is the deliverer of God's people, but could he be the redeemer? Years and years, centuries later, King David comes along and King Solomon comes along and all the prophets start coming along and there's just so many others, Samson, Gideon, Ruth, Solomon, Elijah, Esther, Rahab. God inserts himself into the story time and time and time and time again to deliver people. I said this to you last week, that the age of the kings in Israel yields to the age of the prophets and into times of Israel's captivity as servants of other nations. Prophets like Isaiah begin to prophesy very articulate and detailed insight about the coming deliverer. I'm going to read to you two passages in just a moment from the prophet Micah, who who tells exactly where the birth of Jesus is going to be. Like, exactly. Like, like have, have you ever dropped a pin on your Google Maps? Like, you know what I'm talking about? If you're trying to share your location, you drop a pin. Like, that kind of exactly. Stuff that if you don't realize it in Scripture, you miss it. But, but these prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus, articulately tell where he will be born. I have to imagine that during this time, the angels get really excited. 5,000 years, almost 5,000 years they've been watching this story unfold. It's a long show. I mean, Lord of the Rings Extended Edition is a long movie. But a four and a half thousand, almost 5,000 year production called Humanity, it's a long movie to sit through. They probably got tired of eating popcorn at that point. Something strange happens at the end of the Old Testament. There's a gap. I don't know if you know this. There's a gap in between the end of Malachi which is the last book of the Old Testament, and the beginning of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. It's a 400-year, four-century-long gap of silence where nothing is written about God. No prophets are speaking. Heaven goes silent for four centuries. And it's interesting because the very last word of the Old Testament, the very last word of the last prophetic utterance of the Old Testament is the word curse. I don't know if you knew that or not, but if you go read the end of the book of Malachi, you can find out that the very last word in the Old Covenant is the word curse. When Jesus stands up in Matthew chapter 5 to preach the very first sermon in the New Testament, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, He starts by saying, blessed. Isn't that amazing? I don't have time to go preach a message on the Beatitudes, but you ought to look up Matthew 5. It's the first first time God starts speaking again after 400 years of silence and what ended with a curse starts with a blessing when Jesus shows up. Because how many of you know Jesus changed everything? God begins to break the silence by inserting himself into the story again, but this time it's different. As I said to you last week, Gabriel starts going back and forth between heaven and earth, talking to people, going to Mary's cousin Elizabeth, going to her husband Zechariah, going to Mary, going to Joseph. 
God shows up in this miracle baby who would later become John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. A census is called by Caesar, so the, so the entire known world at that time begins to shift and travel and move and go back to the place that they were born for this census, which we know means that Joseph and his wife, who is not yet his wife but is betrothed to be his wife, goes with him, fully pregnant with Jesus. And they're on their way to the town of Bethlehem. We said that a new star has shown up in the sky that's never been seen before, and this star has now gotten the attention of so many different people, some of them kings from the Far East. God's literally preparing and prepping the entire known world for the arrival of the lamb that he talked about in the garden. Mary and Joseph are hunkered down in the stable with the livestock when she begins to go into labor. And for some reason, God sends all of the angels to a field in a town called Bethlehem with a very important message. And that's where we left off last week. I want to ask, why Bethlehem? What's so significant about this little town six miles away from Jerusalem? We could walk. It probably would only take a couple hours to get there from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Why was that significant? There's a number of reasons, not the least of which is that Joseph, if you track his lineage, was a descendant of King David. And Bethlehem is the city of David. And Joseph is a direct descendant of the line of Israelite kings. So he goes back to his birthplace to be registered in Caesar's census. Listen to what the prophet Micah has to say about this. But you, this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. You can just listen along. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Aren't you glad your name is not Ephrathah? <laughs> Anyways. The, where do y'all live? Ephrathah, yeah. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Do you see on the screen there? Uh, will, you, will you bring up the uh, New King James if we have it? Actually, I know we have it, so if you bring that up. I want you to see this. This is really interesting to me. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the nations, or though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one. You see how it's capitalized? The words, the one. We know who he's talking about, right? He's talking about Jesus. Anytime, by the way, anytime you see capital words like that in the Old Testament, it's talking about Jesus. It is a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. So anytime you see something like that where it's like the words, the one, or the word ruler, how it's capitalized, talking about God, it's talking about the coming of Jesus. So it says, out of you, out of who? Bethlehem, shall come the one to be ruler in Israel whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Sounds a whole lot like the Christmas story, doesn't it? Somebody going into birth, going into labor in a little town called Bethlehem. Now, if that wasn't enough, Micah gets even more pinpointed in the location of Jesus' birth. I mean, if Bethlehem wasn't enough to convince you, he's going to say some stuff here in just a few minutes that will really drive it home. The angels have been waiting over 4,000 years for this moment that Micah is talking about, that something in Bethlehem is going to happen. A woman is going to go into labor. She's going to go and she's going to give birth to the one, the ruler that's going to lead the people of Israel. Could this really be the lamb? The angels are wondering as they go to Bethlehem. I asked you this question, why would God send angels to speak to shepherds? Because shepherds know a lamb when they see one. Shepherds' business is lambs and sheep, right? It'd be like if you were a pizza maker and you made really good pizza, and then someone tried to trick you with some gas station pizza. <laughs> and you were like, that's not pizza. You know pizza. Shepherds know lambs. And this specific group of shepherds really know lambs in a very particular and specific fashion. I want to go to Luke chapter 2. And I want us to read through all of Luke 2. If, you, if you've never read through all of Luke 2, I, I just very much encourage you to do this. This is our tradition on Christmas morning, that before my kids open a single present, Claire's nodding her head, she would tell you this is true. We sit down and Daddy reads Luke chapter 2, and then we pray, and then the agony is over, and they get to... Open their presence. No, they're good sports about it. I want to read 20 verses to you. And as we go down through these 20 verses, I'm going to stop and I'm going to make some points that I think you'll find interesting and, and perhaps even revelatory. Rome, or excuse me, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So now we know that Joseph from Bethlehem is going out of Galilee, in, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, verse 4, the city of David, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So they must have been there for a little bit of time, right? And it says... 
that she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, when we read the word inn, it's important for us to understand that this was not a hotel. Okay? This wasn't like... um, This wasn't like going into a town and checking into a hotel. The word actually means a guest chamber, so more than likely, this would have been a guest room in the home of Joseph's family. However, when they get there, they find out that there's no room for them in this guest chamber. And it's speculative for us to assume why, but it could be that Joseph just had a big enough family and just got there late enough that there wasn't any room for them in the guest room. It also could be that because Mary was pregnant with a child out of wedlock, that Joseph's family didn't want to have anything to do with them. It's, it's presumptive, we can't really know for sure, but we do know this for sure, there's a guest room and Joseph and Mary aren't in it. So where do they go? I want to show you two pictures. I've titled them The Inn. I want to show you two pictures of where the Bible describes that they were. And if you actually go to Israel, these are pictures from Israel where they believe the cave actually was that Jesus was born in. Show the second one as well. My, my dear friend Jonathan Arnett was on a tour in, in Israel and took these pictures a couple years ago and sent them to me. This is where they believe Jesus was actually born in this cave because there was no room for them in the guest room. In the garden... Man was created from dirt. And now man was going to be redeemed from the dirt. We said that a cave on the backside of a a field in Israel, in Bethlehem, is a terrible place for a king to be born. But it's very perfectly fitting for a lamb to be born there. The Bible, I want you to see this, that the Bible is never arbitrary in what it communicates. It never wastes words. So the fact that it says there's no room for for them in the end is is to help us to understand the the seriousness and the direness of the situation. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 again. She brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the the manger is something that I want to spend a few minutes with and I also want to spend a few minutes with this idea of swaddling clothes. I did some research once and found out that the type of swaddling clothes that they believe Mary used was this particular type of linen that was only available to the priesthood. In Israel, that it was a significant garment and there was significance to Jesus being swaddled. Why was Jesus swaddled? 
Why, why would it be mentioned twice in this passage? We just read it the first time. We're going to read it again. Let's keep reading. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Or as Linus likes to say, they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Why would it be? Remember, I said that the Bible's not arbitrary. It doesn't waste words. Why would it be that this would be mentioned twice? This swaddling clothes and this manger. Through the years, a manger to us has come to mean a feeding trough where livestock eat. But in ancient Israel, particularly in Bethlehem, a manger had a very unique, very specific purpose. You see, Bethlehem, which is only about six miles away from Jerusalem, was the primary place where sheep and other livestock were raised for Jewish sacrifices. Why were there so many shepherds in Bethlehem? Because they had one very unique job, to raise sacrificial lambs. These shepherds in this part of Israel are different from all the other shepherds everywhere else in the nation of Israel. Their job is to raise sheep for sacrifice. Their job is to take little lambs who are spotless and nurture them and protect them so that they can be delivered to the high priest for sacrifice for the sins of the nation. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Because there was a very special group of shepherds and a very special group of sheep in that field. I want to I wanna get a little more pinpointed. I read to you that first verse in Micah chapter 5 where it talks about Bethlehem being the stage that is being set for the coming Messiah. Can we drop the pin even closer? Micah chapter 4 verse 8 says this, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Pay, pay close attention to that word, that phrase, O tower of the flock. Normally, I would read right past that and think nothing of it. But I want to show you a picture of the tower of the flock. The tower of the flock is an actual place called Migdal Adair. And that's it. And it sits on the edge of a shepherd's field. And this is a tower that dates back to the book of Genesis. We find the first reference of this tower mentioned in the book of Genesis when Jacob camps out there after the death of his wife, Rachel. 
this tower is super ancient and it's still there in Jerusalem, in, in outside of Bethlehem today. And it's referred to as the Tower of the Flock. And the, the Hebrew name for it is Migdal Eder. Centuries after Jacob settled there, when Israel is developed into a nation and the temple in Jerusalem is established and it became the place where the shepherds kept watch over their flocks. They would sit in this tower and survey the fields around them to make sure they had a vantage point so that nobody could come and attack and steal away the lambs that were separated for sacrifice. This was such an important field, it was such an important flock, it was such an important group of shepherds that Micah like drops the pin on the map to say, this is where the king is going to be born. So why, why do we mention the manger? Why do we mention the swaddling clothes? It's because the manger and the swaddling clothes were a tradition that had a very specific purpose. Why don't you show the picture of the manger, please? Every year in Israel, people would come to the shepherds in Bethlehem to purchase a lamb for sacrifice. Every home had to have its own lamb for Passover. But every year from those singles, from those shepherds, a single lamb was selected to become the sacrificial lamb that would represent the whole nation of Israel. This lamb was taken to the home of the high priest and was kept in safety until it was time for this lamb to ceremonially take all the sins of the nation. The lamb was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that it would be held still while the, the shepherds and, the, and people from the temple inspected it to ensure that it was free of blemishes. So the reason for the swaddling clothes is to get the, the little baby lamb to hold still so that we can check and make sure that it's spotless. And this is what a manger actually looks like. It's less of a feeding trough and more of a safe, a place in, in, in a large rock where there's a section of it hewn away so that this lamb who's been wrapped in swaddling clothes can be laid down to rest in a place where it will be kept safe. They kept it safe because of the Jewish law. And they did it by wrapping the lamb in swaddling clothes and laying it in a manger just like that. When this detail of the manger and the swaddling clothes was revealed to the shepherds, the angels and the shepherds knew exactly what was happening. The curtain had been pulled all the way open. The plan of redemption had been fully revealed. God was inserting himself into the story again. I want to read you perhaps my most favorite passage of, in, of Scripture in its entirety. It's John chapter 14, or excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 14, and it reads this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God inserted himself into the story one more time. And what started out as the word of God literally became human flesh. Jesus is so magnificent because he is the word of God in human form. And what does the scripture say? The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Can I ask you what the shepherds were seeing that night when they stood at that tower, keeping watch over their flocks by night? What did they see? They saw his glory. Guys, for the first time in human history, since the dawn of humanity, the heavens are erupting with the full-on glory of God. It's so much more significant than a bright light display. I mean, John says it better than anybody else in the Bible, in my opinion. It's my favorite chapter in the whole of Scripture. He says, the word becomes flesh, and we, who's the we? Uh, Everybody that was present, but especially those shepherds that night. We beheld what? The glory of the angels? No, we beheld the glory of the word being made flesh. That the whole sky erupted with the glory of God on full display. No one had ever seen such a thing. We beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God inserted himself into the story one more time. Hebrews tells us that it was the last time. I want to read you one more passage and then we'll close. You see, the word became flesh, but the people in Israel were expecting another Moses. They were expecting another King David. They were expecting another a mighty man like Samson. But God hoodwinked everybody by sending a lamb. <laughs> Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he became so much superior to the angels as the name he inherited was superior to theirs. Why did God send angels to speak to shepherds? 
Because shepherds not only knew a lamb when they saw it, but they could confirm the lamb when he arrived. The shepherd said, you know what? This isn't some regular old lamb. This, 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 isn't, this isn't just another, you know, another livestock being born. This isn't just another person being born. This isn't just some person who was born on the backside of a cave uh, because there was no room in the guest room for him. This isn't somebody, just another casual birth. The angel showed up to tell the shepherds, this is the one God's been talking about for 5,000 years. This is the one that we adore. That's why the angels said glory to God in the highest. (laughs) And on earth, peace, goodwill to men. If the shepherds were clever enough to see and recognize the lamb, then we can be too. Do you know the lamb when you see him? You know the lamb when you see him. John the Baptist saw him coming from the Jordan River. He said, behold, the lamb of God takes away the sins of this world. Next week during our Christmas presentation, we'll read the last part of that Luke chapter, chapter 2. My prayer, my desire for us every Christmas season, but especially today, is that we don't ever lose sight of who the Lamb of God is. And that we don't ever lose sight of the fact that Christmas is, is one of the most pivotal moments in human history. It's so easy for us to get weighed down with the craziness of the season. We got Christmas parties and events, ballets, so much candy and cookies and cakes to eat. and, and, And the celebration is awesome and it should be celebrated. In our celebration, can we remember who we're celebrating and why? Can we remember that we're celebrating the arrival of the Lamb? And that we're celebrating the fulfillment of something God set in motion millennia ago. That from the moment Adam sinned, God already was ready with the plan of redemption. I said this to you last week. God doesn't need a God didn't have a plan B because he never needed one. The Lamb was always heaven's plan A. And the Lamb showed up that day. And those guys watched it from that tower. And those angels, they sang praises and the whole sky illuminated with the glory of God. Why? Because the lamb had arrived. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Why don't you stand to your feet this morning? I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I... I really and truly love this perspective on Christmas. It's a little different. People don't think about the angels a whole lot during Christmas time, but but I do. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I hope that it's ministered hope to your heart for this season. Why don't we bow our heads and we'll close with a moment of prayer.
Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.